Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Once again, I just want to welcome everyone and those who are watching online. We, last time when I, we started a series on the book of Nehemiah and we are going into chapter 2 this morning. I want every one of us to think of our first love. Now don't look at your spouses. When you fall, fell in love with the Lord. When I first committed my life to the Lord, I was completely sold out for Christ. I wanted to be in the house of God. I wanted to be in the company of His children. I love to hear the word being exposited. I want to sing for the Lord and sing out loud. I want to be in the, on my knees worshiping and praising God. I was ready to give up anything and everything to serve the Lord. But, there's a big but here. Soon I realized that things don't always go smoothly. David prayed this. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. When I made my prayer, I went one step further. I said, I would rather be a doormat in the house of my God. After serving the Lord for nearly 30 years, I can say this for sure, the Lord takes our prayer seriously. Serving the Lord does not guarantee a trouble-free life. In fact, it often gets us into deeper trouble, but part of maturity is learning to deal with the world as it is not as we would like it to be. I know it's very easy for a young person or a new Christian to become very idealistic about serving the Lord. Whether it is an opportunity to teach Sunday school or to serve on church committees, to work with the young people or to go on short-term mission trips or to go into some kind of full-time Christian work. It's easy to get stars in your eyes. You may think that it'll be wonderful to, to serve the Lord. It's wonderful to work with the children of God. I'm not dealing with the pagans. And so we jump in and only to find out that the water isn't just warm. Sometimes it's steaming hot. Serving the Lord is not easy. Often it is challenging. It is discouraging. Often it is disappointing and often it is burdensome. Unless you have the right mindset, church, you will fall into these areas of struggles and either you will face complete burnout and give up or you will feel disillusioned and quit. So what does serving God look like? I want you to see what Apostle Paul says here. During his third journey on his way back to Jerusalem, Paul stopped at a place called Miletus, and he got down the elders of the churches in Ephesus, and this is what he said, I serve the Lord with great humility, with tears, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. 
Then in the same chapter, in verse 20, 24, he says this, sorry. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. Mind you, a servant of God speaking. My only aim, Paul is saying, is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Church Paul does not talk about the outcome of his ministry. He is not talking about how many people were converted. How many churches did I establish? He is only talking about what he should be doing. The key word here is consistency. So when was the last time, let me ask you, that you served with great humility? When was the last time you served with tears in the midst of severe testing? When was the last time you considered your life worth nothing to you? Your only aim is to finish the race and to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given you. And what is the task? Paul is very clear here. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Church, that is the task of every believer. To testify to the goodness of God's grace. Now, in Nehemiah chapter 2 has some helpful insights on the realities of serving God. Even though Nehemiah was doing God's will, it wasn't all smooth and rosy for him. Now, studying his life, especially in this chapter 2, will help us, on one hand, not to be overly idealistic and become vulnerable to disillusionment. And on the other hand, to be realistic while not giving into pessimism and dropping out. So let me quickly give you a quick overview of chapter 2. I'm just picking up from where I left last time. Now, Nehemiah was working as a cupbearer to the Persian king, Artaxerxes. Now, he heard from his brother and others that the wall in Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burnt with fire. So he was so heartbroken. The Bible says, and we looked at it last time, he wept, he fasted, he prayed. Now, church, between chapter 1 and chapter 2, four months have passed. Now he appears before the king with wine. Nehemiah's great grief, he could not hide. The king was able to understand and see the troubled servant. Now Nehemiah is standing in front of the king and he's asking permission, can you please help me go and build the city, the build the walls? Not only we see as you heard the passage being read, the king gave him permission, the king gave him the resources he would need to accomplish the task. The king granted military troops and horsemen and letters of passage and even building materials for Nehemiah's use. Now, along the way, Nehemiah's return became known to the enemies, and we're going to look at that in a, in a minute. The neighboring rulers of Israel, they vowed to stop Nehemiah and the Jews from rebuilding the city. But Nehemiah had not divulged his whole intent for going to Jerusalem first. Everyone thought that he was making a visit. Nehemiah surveyed the city and determined everything that was necessary 
to do the work of building the walls. He then shared his plans with the Jews around him and united them to build the wall. Now when the neighboring rulers heard about this and they were ridiculed and they asked Nehemiah whether he was rebelling against the king, and we'll look into that in a minute. This was Nehemiah's response, verse 20. The God of heaven will give, will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding, uh, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So church, Nehemiah faced real problems, but he moved through them to great accomplishments. So as we go through chapter 2, we learn from Nehemiah three essentials to serve our God realistically. Three simple but very powerful messages. These are essentials of finishing the course that God has set before us. So let us break it down. Firstly, to serve God realistically, we must learn to wait on Him. Everybody say the word wait. Wait on Him. We note that four months elapsed between the time that Nehemiah heard the report from Jerusalem until his opportunity to speak to the king. Now, during that time, Nehemiah was so burdened by the news, and we read last time that he wept, he mourned, fasted, and prayed for God to do something about the grievous situation in Jerusalem. But church, as we skim through the pages of the scriptures, we see many men of God whom God used, waited on the Lord for much longer period than Nehemiah. If you take Abraham, he waited 25 years for God to give him Isaac. If you look at Joseph, he spent nearly 13 years from the time he was sold as a slave and the time he spent at Potiphar's house and in the prison before he was made the premier of Egypt. Israel was enslaved for 400 years in Egypt before the promise came to pass in their lives. Moses had to spend about 40 years in the wilderness and even the whole nation of Israel was to spend 40 years in the wilderness along with Moses. David spent his, in his 20s, he was running for his life from Saul before he was elevated to the position of his, of his um, calling. Take Apostle Paul. He spent three years alone in Arabia and more years in Tarsus before the Lord began to use him in a more significant manner. So as church, those whom God uses must learn to wait on Him. I know waiting is very hard for all of us. We live in a world where time is so precious. If you ask the young people, they really will say they don't have time. Yes, they'll be on bed till 12 noon. It's hard to wake them up. But they will say they have no time. They'll, they'll just hang out with their friends. If the same old friends spend hours and hours talking what God alone knows. But they don't have time to wait on the Lord. We say life is too short. Waiting is a waste. But God puts us on hold. So you'll ask, all right, pastor, I get it. I get the point. I have to wait, but what do I do while I wait? 
Let us see what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah did three things while he waited. Number one, while waiting, Nehemiah prayed. The prayer that we looked at last time in verses 5 to 11 in chapter 1 was not a one-shot deal. It was really a summary of what Nehemiah prayed. We looked at that last time. It was a burdensome prayer over the sin of God's people, seeking God's favor and forgiveness and restoration, burden for God's glory. Church prayer is a key component for Nehemiah in his ministry. Throughout the book of Nehemiah, as you go through that, and we're going to look at that, at least there are more than 11 times in the 13 chapters it talks about Nehemiah's prayers. Look at verse 4. The king said to me, what is it you want? And then what did Nehemiah do? Read with me. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. Though it is a one-liner in this verse 4, it reflects the fact that in any and every situation, Nehemiah looked to God in prayer. Nehemiah is a great example of a man who prayed without ceasing. We know that Paul to the saints in Thessalonica, he says pray without ceasing. The Greek word translated pray without ceasing does not mean that you keep on praying and praying and praying without any break. It means is if there is a military, a repeated military assault on a target until such time that is achieved. That's what it means. It means the prayer should be something we return to again and again and again until we obtain an answer. That's what prayer without ceasing means. So let us understand the context here. Now the king notices that Jeremiah, Nehemiah is sad in his presence which was actually a breach of protocol because kings like to be surrounded with happy people. Actually, this could have caused Nehemiah to lose his job and even his life church. So the question is, was it staged? Was Nehemiah trying to pretend? I don't think so. The gravity of his situation is seen in that he was very much afraid in front of the king. Look at this passage of scripture here. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And what does the other one say? Read with me. I was very much afraid. It was the opportunity Nehemiah has been waiting for, for king to ask him, what's your problem? But he was afraid. So how did he handle that? We looked at that passage. When the king asked the question, what is it you want? Nehemiah said, he prayed to the God of heaven. He was in a situation where he was, the king was ready to ask the question as, what do you want? Why are you sad? The Bible says, or Nehemiah says, I prayed to the God of heaven. It had to be a silent, instantaneous cry of help, Lord. God, give me the wisdom now to speak the right words. This quick sentence prayer rested on four months of extended prayers in Nehemiah's life. It shows that Nehemiah depended on the Lord in every situation. When the king showed favor, Nehemiah did not attribute that to good luck. 
You know, it breaks my heart when some Christians, they say something and say, knock wood, knock on wood. Shameful thing to do, church. There is no good luck for Christians. Please do not use the word good luck. Look at verse 8, what Nehemiah says. And because the gracious hand of God, of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. Not for any other reason. And we see King Solomon writing to, in Proverbs, he said, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Who wishes? God wishes. The king's heart is like a channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He can be a believing king or an unbelieving king. But the one who is operating him is our God. Not his God, our God. Church, remember this. Prayer and prayer alone can move the obstacles in our ministry. I know there was a time we prayed for Sunday school. The Lord in his time gave us children I want you to understand the Lord's delay is not his denial. It is one way he teaches us to depend on him in prayer. Because if we get it instantly, we grab it and forget God. But when we wait on God in prayer, we learn to seek himself and to depend upon him in ways that we never would learn any other way. You know, there was one spiritual discipline that I always adhered to for the past more than 40, 50 years, I would say. This my mom taught me. My mom used to tell me, son, you have to stop sometimes and to reflect on what God has done to you. You know, church, I would strongly encourage all of us to stop and to understand what God has done. The Bible says, be still and know that I am God. We have to stop and do a thorough assessment to take an inventory of the blessings that God has bestowed upon you. That's when you'll know who your God is. Because when the finally, when, when, the, the, when the answer comes, we realize that it is because of one reason that the good hand of our God was upon us. It is not my intelligence, it is not my wisdom, it is not my knowledge. It is not who I knew. Now that would bring all glory to him and him alone. So the first thing we see that Nehemiah was doing while he was waiting was that he prayed. And the second thing he did was he developed patience. Now waiting reveals our impatience and teaches us to be patient, isn't it? Patient is a fruit of the Spirit. And God wants to to develop it in all children. An important, impatient leader can cause a lot of problems if he reacts impulsively in a crisis. Now, as we read this passage, we see in two places in this narrative, we see of Nehemiah's patience. Firstly, for four months, Nehemiah waited. He concealed this heavy burden from the king and presented it to God in private and until God finally opened the opportunity to talk with the king. In his time, he makes things what? Beautiful. In his time. 
Son, I want to encourage you with that. I know you're waiting for your wife to come in his time. Patiently waiting for the Lord. The second thing that we see Nehemiah is patient is that when he went to Jerusalem, the Bible says, look at this, I went to Jerusalem and after staying there for how many days? Three days. His patience is also seen when he arrived there. He could have written right into the town and said, guys, I am here, let's solve this problem. Because he's coming with so much passion and burden and he didn't jump on it. He waited three days before doing anything. Even then, Nehemiah moved cautiously, keeping his purpose concealed under the right moment. You know, many pastors and many workers, especially when they are fresh out of seminary and, and coming to know the Lord, you're bursting with great ideas of reforming the church. You move so quickly and you meet with resistance. And trust me, it causes cardiac arrest within the body of Christ. The metaphor of sowing and reaping should teach us we need patiently to sow God's word into lives and that change takes time. One thing God has blessed me with, church, I can tell you very openly, is patience. I have tons of it, trust me. But when it passes one limit, then it will be difficult for me. Patience, we had to pray for that. Nehemiah prayed and he was patient and he waited to work. You see, when the Apostle Paul said, I serve the Lord with great humility, with tears, in the midst of severe testing, church, that is patience. So we looked at when Nehemiah had to wait upon the Lord, he prayed, he developed patience, and thirdly, what he did was he planned. The chapter shows that Nehemiah had been doing a lot of advanced thinking and planning. When the king asked how long would he be gone, Nehemiah didn't vaguely say, well, I don't know. It's a typical answer he hear today, isn't it, from the children. Where I go? What time I come? I don't know. Instead, he gave a definite time, meaning that he had already thought about it carefully. Nehemiah laid out some definite requests that showed that he had been doing some careful planning. Look at this passage, please. He said, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates. Verse number eight. May I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park. A lot of thinking has taken place in Nehemiah. A lot of planning has taken place. He thought of all that he would need to make this journey a success. He requested letters from the king to the governors of the provinces to allow him to pass through their territory. He asked for a letter to the keeper of the king's forest to get timber for making repairs to the walls and gates and for a house for himself. And when he got to Jerusalem, even there, he assessed the situation firsthand. Obviously, he did a lot of thoughtful planning as to how to approach this project. Now, many Christians think it's very unspiritual to plan. They will say, let's just trust the Lord. Isn't it? We are very good at saying that. I want to be very careful when I make that statement. Which can be interpreted, I don't have a clue about what we are going to do. It's true we can go to the other extreme of being so elaborate in our plans that we trust the plans and not the Lord. 
Let me be careful about that. But Nehemiah, what he's showing here, church, a lesson for us to learn is the biblical balance of waiting on God in prayer, but also thinking and planning about what he should do when God opened the door. So the first lesson that we learn in this passage is this. Learn to wait on the Lord, and while you wait, you have to pray, you have to develop patience, and you have to, while you wait, you plan. The second lesson that we learn here is to serve God realistically, we must learn to work with people. Now we learn that Nehemiah was sensitive to people and he responded with tact. It is easy, church listen carefully, to be idealistic about serving God until you meet the actual people that you had to work with. It is like saying, I love the church, I love to serve, but it's the people I can't stand. Sometimes you, you say to yourself, the ministry would be so great if it, it weren't for the people. The biggest mistake pastors do and some of the, I'm, I'm challenging all the young people who are rising up to be lead, the next generation of leadership. The biggest mistake that we pastors do is often think that we are the radio ministry hosts. There's a mic that has been given to us. We are standing in front of a microphone. We just speak. We are not listening to what the people are saying. We don't care about how what has been, how it's been received. Some pastors would say, I've been called to teach and preach, and taking care of the people is the job of the elders. But church, we are called what? Shepherds. The Lord says the good shepherd would leave the 99th and go look for the one that was lost. How would the shepherd know that one sheep was missing unless he knew every single sheep? The ministry involves people. If you cannot work with people, I want to tell you this lovingly but firmly, you are not fit to be in the ministry. In a secular job, church, you don't need to love your co-worker. You are paid for the tasks assigned to you. It is a contractual relationship. But ministry is all about people. So what do we learn from Nehemiah? There are three types of people he dealt with in this chapter. First we see Nehemiah knew how to work with the unbelieving king. This was a very difficult situation for Nehemiah because his boss happens to be the king who is an unbeliever who literally had the power to make Nehemiah's head roll. That's why Nehemiah was very much afraid when, he, when the king asked him why he was sad in his presence. Nehemiah, you rub the king on the wrong side, there are serious and severe consequences. Also, this is the very king, church, and we looked at it last time in the book of Ezra, chapter 4, you find it, who previously stopped the work, the constructing the wall in Jerusalem. Now, I want you to understand that decrees of the kings of Medes and Persians were well known about being unchangeable. Once he speaks, thus says the Lord kind of thing. 
You cannot change it. So here's Nehemiah. He wants to convince the Persian king to reverse his policy about Jerusalem. It's not an easy task. So how did Nehemiah do it? As we have seen, he moved the king through private prayer. It's amazing how God can soften the hearts of the most difficult people if we will spend time asking him to do so. Talk to God before you talk to a difficult person. Nehemiah had also gained the king's respect. This is important, church, through his competence on the job. Nehemiah was so liked by the king, king did not say, adios, goodbye, you can go to Jerusalem. He asked him, when are you going to come back? Nehemiah's trustworthy character and his loyalty to the king has been obvious over the time he had worked for the king. There's a lesson for all of us here. Every Christian should be a witness on the job. Wherever God has placed you, you may be the CEO of a company or you may be the janitor in a company. The witnessing first by our godly character and competence and it's only then by verbal witness. Also notice that Jeremiah was tactful and sensitive in how he spoke to the king. He never mentions Jerusalem by name. Did you see that? That would have been a very sore spot for the, with the king. He refers to it in personal terms as the place, look at this passage here, as the place of his father's tombs, a point that this pagan king could relate to. See what he says here, the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried. Church, if we had to speak to an unbelieving boss or an unbeliever about a difficult subject, think about how he will receive it. Speak in a manner that he is certain to identify with. Ask God for wisdom to speak the right way. And the Bible is very clear when you ask for wisdom, he is sure to give it to you. So the first group of people that we see Nehemiah dealt with was the unbelieving king. And the second group of people are the demoralized believers of the Jews. The Jews in Jerusalem believed in God and his covenant promises, at least intellectually. But they had lost all hope. They had tried to rebuild the wall and they had been shut down. And we see that in the book of Ezra chapter 4. They were likely to resist the outsiders coming in and telling them to try something that they knew is not going to work. So here is Nehemiah is faced with these demoralized believers when he went to Jerusalem. Some may have not seen the need for the walls even. And the others would warn that if you try to rebuild, you're only going to stir up the opposition of the surrounding governors. But Nehemiah's careful and secretive preparations, once he got to Jerusalem, showed that he anticipated some resistance to his proposal by these believers, so-called. 
So the Bible says he spent three days and doing his homework, he thinking about how to present this in a way that would overcome the objections. After that, he called the Jewish leaders, people together, and began by stating the problem very plainly. Look at this. Verse number 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. See how, relates, see how he relates to this problem. He identified himself with them in the problem. It wasn't their problem. It is our problem, he says. He didn't blame them for things. But neither did he gloss over the fact that we have a problem. Then he appealed to a need they all felt. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we'll no longer be in disgrace. Church, they all know that a defenseless Jerusalem was a joke to the surrounding neighbors. The neighbors sensed that Nehemiah had come to seek their welfare. Nehemiah told the Jews how God had already been favorable. Perhaps he showed them the letters from the king, I don't know, and the requisition that he made for the timber. But their instant re response was that of hope. Look at verse number 18. I also told them the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied what? Let's read together. Let us start rebuilding. Let us start rebuilding. See how the people were motivated. There's an art of to working with people and learning to motivate them to accomplish great things. As a ministry leader, you must seek God's counsel first to know what to say to the people and how to say it. Because know that you will not have approval from everyone and you cannot please everyone, but you need godly counsel and be able to articulate it to the people. You see, many times we go to evangelize, be very careful that you are not, it depends on how you want to word it, how you want to approach them, you, can, you, you will be seen as a judge judging them. When you go and say, you know, you have a problem. You are going to go to hell. If I say we have a problem, I had the problem. It's our problem. I know what, how what you're feeling. I tell you this church, I mean, you know, I have been to uh, funerals before and uh, I'm talking about before I started the full-time ministry. I've been to funerals, I've, I've, I've empathized with people, at least I thought I did. But the true feeling came only after I experienced the death of my dad. Because I've experienced it. I was able to guess it, say, I understand it. I totally understand what you're going through. Church, it's important that we're going to work with the uh, demoralized believers that they, we are able to identify. They are able to identify with you. You're not there to judge them. You need godly counsel to be able to articulate it to the people and help them see the rationale behind your decisions. Nehemiah should teach us to combine wisdom and tact. And so the 
first group was the unbelieving king and the demoralized believers. And the third group of people Nehemiah dealt here was the enemies. And you heard the passage being read about Sanballat, the governor of Samaria, Tobiah, the ruled the Ammonites, and Geshem, the leader of the Arabs. They all opposed a fortified Jerusalem because it threatened their political positions. They didn't care at all about the plight of the Jews. They were displeased, the Bible says, verse number 10, and joined together to ridicule the project and accuse the people of rebellion against the king. Look at this passage in verse number 19. But when Sanballat and Honite, the Honite, Tabiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked, are you rebelling against the king? Because the king has already previously seen the book of Ezra. He had barred them from building this wall. But Nehemiah demonstrates both wisdom and courage in dealing with his enemies. He was wise in that, he says, there is no time for diplomacy here. I need to meet these enemies head on. You know, any meeting to hear their concerns to work out a compromise would have been a mistake. So Nehemiah courageously confronted them and he drew the line between them and God's people so that they could not join the project with the goal of sabotaging it. Church, he didn't use the clout of king's letters. He never showed king's letters. But he used the spiritual clout. You know what did he say in verse 20? So I answered them, who? The enemies. And said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right to a memorial in Jerusalem. Anytime God's people say, let us arise and build, the enemy will say, let us arise and stop them. Anytime you want to advance in the ministry, the enemy will come and say, let us stop them. A godly leader must have the discernment to know when to work with people and when to confront and oppose them. Church, I want you to understand you must know which battles to choose because your focus is to win the war and not to win every battle. I want you to remember one thing. You should never fight with a skunk because you will stink even if you kill it. Isn't it? You should know what battles to choose. So to, God, to serve God realistically... This is what we have learned so far. Firstly, we said we had to learn to wait on the Lord. We had to pray. We had to develop patience. We need to have a plan. Secondly, we said to learn to work with people. There are three groups of people we have found. The believers, the demoralized believers, sorry, unbelievers, demoralized believers, and the enemies. And lastly, serving God entails learning to wrestle with problems. We have already seen how Nehemiah dealt with the problems of the enemies. But he had to face the problem of the destroyed wall. There's a wall that has been destroyed. So he began with the realistic first-hand appraisal of the situation. As the leader, he needed to know exactly how bad things were so that he could develop a realistic, practical plan of action. Nehemiah didn't gloss over the problem. He describes it to the people as a bad situation. 
Now, some leaders will spend time talking about the problems and analyzing to the nth degree. And some of us may be good at that. Others will identify the problem and attack it directly. You see, as we go through this narrative in the days to come, church, I, we will see how Nehemiah realistically saw this problem and broke it down into manageable units in order to get the job done. We see that Nehemiah managed to draw everyone's attention to the problem at hand. He says, the wall is destroyed and burned. We need to fortify the city. The need to build the wall back on. A great leader would bring the attention of the people on the problems at hand and not on the people. We have a problem as believers, church, here at Seekers. Apostle Paul articulated for us very clearly. You know, the Lord has blessed us immensely, much more than what we deserve, what we can think. But we prayed. God provided. Now we have a responsibility. And the problem is this, Apostle Paul says, in, 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 as, he, as he, we looked at earlier, my only aim is to finish the race and complete the task. The Lord has given me the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. That is our goal. That is the problem that we need to attack, all of us. So at SEF, this is our main focus. I appeal to everyone to step up to the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. I want us to come, let us fortify the walls of this, of God's church. So let me close by reading this and, and verse number 18. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been upon, which had been good upon me. And also the king's words that he had spoken to me. And I want you to read the next passage with me, please. So they said, let us rise up and build. And I pray that is your decision today as well. Let us rise up and build. So just to summarize everything. First, what does serving God entails? First thing is we have to learn to wait on the Lord. While waiting, we need to pray. We need to develop patience. We need to develop a plan. Secondly, we need to learn to work with people. There can be unbelievers. There can be demoralized believers. There are the enemies. And thirdly, we need to learn to wrestle with the problem. We have to attack the problem, not the people. So church, this is my appeal to you. Serving entails this. Waiting on the Lord, working with people, and wrestling with the problem. Worship team, please come and join.